I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of survivors' voices of clergy abuse. Welcome back, everybody. This is one of our very rare two-part episodes. In our last episode, we discussed clergy who engage in reprehensible and criminal acts against the people that they are in charge of being the spiritual guides and mentors for. And in light of that episode, Dr. Shiloh and I wanted to make sure that we gave equal exploration of victims' voices, people who have survived and been perpetrated upon after years of abuse. And there unfortunately are many, many stories out there. So we're giving you a couple of stories to review from older cases and also going over some key concepts about recovery from trauma and how these things tend to happen in unequal positions of power. Yeah, we've had some great feedback on the first part. Lots of people think we were way too easy on the Catholic Church. And I said, well, you know, we had to be the equal opportunity, get around to some other denominations and talk about things other, you know, there's such a wide variety of crimes other than the sexual abuse, which we'll focus on today, of course, as well as just religious trauma. But before we get into that, let's remind you what we talked about last week in episode 171, where we covered the vintage case of the Green Scarf Bandit. And he engaged in a series of home invasion robberies in the 1950s here in Los Angeles. So we gave you some idea of what life was like in the 50s in Los Angeles. And good thing, since our next vintage episode, we've already decided it's going to take place in that decade as well. And then we talked about the crimes and explored the phenomenon of home invasion robberies and how that really lingers with victims and the unique aspects of that survival of that trauma. So yes. please go check it out if you have not already. And today we're going to get into our part two. So a little update for us to get started today. We had one of our listeners, Lauren, write in and she's from Michigan. And she told us that Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel just released a report this week detailing abuse allegations of over 20 priests and deacons in a diocese in the Lower Peninsula. And the document is a compilation of the information obtained from the Department of Attorney General, their tip line, as well as victim interviews, police investigations, open source media, paper documents seized from the diocese, and electronic documents found on the diocese computers, as well as reports of allegations disclosed by the diocese. And she's quoted as saying, our promise to the victims was that every case of sexual abuse and assault would be thoroughly reviewed and that the results of the investigation would be transparent. I especially wanted to thank the survivors who have shared their stories, sometimes for the first time after decades of silence. Their willingness to come forward has helped bring attention to an issue that has affected so many in our state and our country, especially children. So this was so timely. Thank you, Lauren, for forwarding this to us because I think we had mentioned Attorney General Nessel in our last episode. I can't imagine the amount of resources that that investigation took, but such important work to let the survivors know that they're being heard. So good job, Michigan. Yeah, I think it's actually really well 
communicated to us by our listeners that felt like we weren't saying enough about it. That's I, that's a completely valid point. And sure. I think that what that's speaking to is that when we give examples from various church organizations across the spectrum, as far as we know, nothing comes to this entire level of what the Vatican and the Catholic Church have done over the decades with their money, with their power to just shuffle these priests around, which is just awful, awful, awful. It made me think, I don't know if we talked about it in our last episode, but you can access some really fascinating videos online on YouTube. If you look up Anna Salter, who is sort of one of the OG, really big names in sex offender research. Yeah, and we talked about she, her. I think last year in an episode. Yeah. I mean, she's really, really amazing and she's still around, but there she produced along with a media company, some training videos that we were able to see when you and I were together mm -hmm. back at our internship site. And one of the things that you do when you're watching this is you're not really sure what you're watching. There's an interview with a Southern Protestant minister talking about how he had been completely manipulated by a child and manipulated by the child's family and nothing ever happened. And how could they talk this way to a man of God? And you're just like, he's so indignant. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that what he's done for Anna Salter, how she was able to Joel him into, why don't you let people know how you would defend yourself? Yep. And now that you've been working with me for so long, would you be willing to talk about how you groomed your victims? And this guy totally talks about how he led the family and the kids through the grooming process. And it's yep. just completely eye-opening. I think it's from the 70s or maybe early 80s, maybe early 80s, yeah. I think. Yeah. Definitely worth watching. But to get us into today's episode, you know, over a period of almost seven years now, Dr. Shiloh and I... I mean, we've discussed a variety of crimes and their intersections with many areas of mental illness and aberrant behaviors. And in the tone of our catchphrase, true crime psychology, and we've tried to utilize humor, although in an appropriate manner. And in today's episode about victims' experiences and honoring victims' voices, we want to emphasize the significant and chronic trauma that sexual, emotional, and physical abuse perpetrated on minors and adults can have, particularly when that abuse is perpetrated by those in our communities that we entrust with spiritual growth and mentorship. We will be referring to a number of resources in our show notes, and we want to remind all listeners that if you have been a victim of such abuse or you know of someone who has been, please take advantage of the legal and mental health resources that are available to you wherever you live. And if you know someone who's hurting because of this, please consider being an advocate for healing while taking care of yourself and maintaining appropriate boundaries. Yes, certainly. I will put the resources that we had in our part one episode in the show notes again. I also came across some that are just specific to religious trauma. And if you're thinking about entering therapy for that, so those are new resources that will be in our show notes today, as well as our bigger resource page that is on our website for all of our episodes. You know, I think I was telling you offline before we recorded last time about my first, what felt like a real exposure to victims' voices when it came to the Catholic Church sexual abuse issue. And when I was in undergrad as a criminal justice student, I had this really fantastic criminal justice professor. He taught like criminal justice 101. And then over the summer, he taught a sex crimes elective course. And 
we just went in once a week for a number of weeks. And every single week we had a different guest speaker with some nexus to sex crimes and, you know, prosecutors, investigators, people kind of on the the fringe of some interesting, you know, and unusual sexual cultures. And he had in an adult, a male in his probably later forties, who was a survivor of sexual abuse from his priest at his church. And he came in as a guest speaker. So, you know, we're talking 1998-ish. So this man was probably abused in the 50s and very transparent. He had clearly done a lot of work. This did not feel exploitative at all. He really made a huge impact on us as young criminal justice students in not recounting the acts of the sexual abuse, but talking about what it was like getting out of the car with the priest after he was dropping him off at home and the pain he was in and having to fake it to walk in the house when he greeted his mom. I mean, just absolutely tragic, horrible things that, you know, was really important for us to listen to at that age and deciding what we were going to do with our education and our careers and how to move forward. And I thought it was so important to have the victim's voice represented. And so we hope, you know, to do a little bit of justice with that today to pair with part one of our episode. So yes, today's episode is going to include descriptions of sexual abuse, grooming, threats of harm, emotional manipulation. We are going to talk about some survivors' stories that they have put out there themselves and through their voice, but we're also going to revisit some of these crimes, not in, of course, huge detail, but this is going to be some stuff that you need to listen with care if, if any of these could be potentially activating for you. In 1984, the issue of sexual abuse by Catholic clergy first exploded into national attention, primarily focusing on child and adolescent victims of priests. And over time, as more information has surfaced, it became evident that the victim base extended beyond boys abused by male perpetrators to include female children, those abused by women, and victims who experienced their trauma. Society these concerns have predominantly revolved around the emotional and the psychological trauma experienced by these victims, but the institutional church has primarily concentrated on the impact on the church itself and the issues surrounding the treatment of clergy abusers. As pastoral counselor Thomas Doyle wrote back in 2010 and again in 2016, quote, little effort has been directed towards examining the spiritual effects on victims or organize responses to address their unique pastoral needs. I would go further to say that while financial compensation is vital to the process, there's still little focus on finding appropriate treatment in the community in a standardized manner for victims, close quote. So before we start talking about the intricacies of the trauma that we're discussing today and that survivors are left with, I want to give some context to who the victims are and survivors are. Victims is what you see overwhelmingly as the terminology in the literature. So I think Dr. Scott and I are going to kind of go back and forth a little bit, right. whether we're using victims or survivors. And I know there's there's preferences out there, but also not everyone is a survivor. Those victims might not be alive anymore, but I just wanted to acknowledge that. And so we know that males and females tend to be differentially at risk of abuse, depending on the institutional setting. Outside of the Catholic Church, the overwhelming numbers of juvenile victims of sexual abuse are female. We have higher rates of abuse reported for females as compared to males in areas of sports, education, and out of 
home care, which includes foster care. But when we look within the church, higher rates of abuse are reported for males compared to females. In total, it's about 60% of victims that are boys between the ages of 11 and 17. And then you have a breakdown of 30% of those victims are girls in the same age range. And then you have that 10% left over, which are children below the age of 11, made up of both boys and girls, which completely makes sense to me. And what we've talked about before, especially perpetrators who are more pedophilic disordered, really do not have a preference between girls and boys when they are prepubescent. So the majority of cases involving child sexual abuse by Catholic clergy usually concerns post-pubescent males or those going through puberty, again, that age range of 11 to 17. And researchers suggest that these differences may be explained by the availability of male victims, generally noting that more boys than girls were sent to boarding schools or some sort of residential care in the decades that we find consistent with accounts of historical institutional abuse, or we're more likely to be altar boys. So I'm going to say more about female victims. We're going to say more about female victims when we discuss some case studies, and then we get to one of our media examples later today. But just front-loading this for you guys so we know what we're talking about here. According to researcher McLaughlin, sexual abuse by clergy is exceptionally traumatic due to its profound impact on the victim's intertwined spirituality and religiosity. And while there is a wide spectrum of religious and spiritual beliefs in individuals, this doesn't mitigate or diminish the severity of the impact. The majority of victims are or were devout members of their churches, or if moderate to agnostic participants as children, this places an exceptional degree of trust in clergy and the religious system of which they are a part. The intensity and destructive consequences of trauma associated with clergy abuse are closely tied to the emotional bond between the victim and the abuser. And it's rooted in factors that may be described as quote unquote spiritual, but are in reality quite toxic, leading to the traumatic relationship characterized and expressed by sexual abuse. Religious-based trauma has two dimensions that directly influence the overall effects of clergy sexual abuse, the emotional and mental conditioning of the victim affecting susceptibility to abuse, and the same conditioning coupled with a toxic spirituality then shaping the impact of the abuse on the victim. Think spiritually based grooming, as it were, where God or the victim's faith is always looming in the background. Yeah, such a huge, huge element to put in here. Preventing the lasting effects of trauma from clergy sexual abuse necessitates more than just awareness of the tactics employed by the sexual perpetrators in clergy attire. Right. And we've talked again in the past a lot about the tactics that sexual predators use. But we must also consider the controversial role of religious conditioning that often guides, directs or manipulates individuals at risk into not trusting their own feelings and directly ceasing the process of critical thinking. At minimum, this process contributes to post-abuse feelings of alienation from both God and society. And at worst, leads to severe and chronic distrust in the world and the victim's trust in themselves, something that many mainstream religions continue to do in terms of cognitive conditioning. And in a little bit, I'm going to break down some of those results of the religious trauma even more. But I wanted to branch off here to just kind of discuss critical thinking for a moment in a very particular way. I think naturally a parent can wrap their head around, you know, keeping guard and making sure their kids are safe. But we really want to also 
look at it and take a holistic view of how do we empower our kids to think critically about themselves and about the people around them, because that's also a really great way to keep them safe. You can't be with them all the time. And in the law enforcement world, we call this situational awareness, <laughs> just being able to take in all the stimuli and um, sort of assess what's going on around you. And in this realm of looking at critical thinking and with kiddos, studies show that kids actually become better learners and therefore can make better decisions when they are encouraged in critical thinking skills, meaning encouraged on how to solve problems. So a lot of the research tells us that kids actually become better learners and therefore can make better decisions when they are encouraged to explain how they solved those problems. So really eliciting some explanation from them rather than just getting a one word answer goes a long way because the research also tells us that the most effective way to foster this critical thinking and these critical thinking skills is to teach those skills directly. It's, it's, also, it's not just like, Hey, explain that to me, but it's really teaching these directly to kids. So the research also says that kids become remarkably better problem solvers when we are teaching them things like how to analyze analogies and how to identify relevant information in a situation or in a story, how they can construct and recognize valid deductive arguments. I mean, these all seem like really big concepts, but these are things that you can just sort of do in your everyday daily life with your kid. Absolutely. And children come in contact with situations every day that these bullet points can apply to. Yes, 100%. Just kind of the way I'm putting it is like distinguishing between evidence and interpretations of evidence. You know, those, you can bring those up in just normal everyday conversations with your kids. And especially, you know, my daughter will spout something that she learned on YouTube and we'll kind of pick that apart a little bit and look at where, again, like where the information is coming from, right? right? That's something that is even being taught in schools nowadays, thank goodness. So just just some things to consider, you know, when, again, you're trying to empower your kids, not just in fear of them being victimized, but as a life skill, really. And not to worry, the research also tells us that these types of lessons do not stifle creativity or anything in that realm. Actually, critical thinking and creativity have a lot of overlapping traits, the curiosity, the flexibility, having an open mind. We know that creative problem solving actually depends on critical thinking skills. So again, a great way to open up your kid to taking in information in an analytical way about the world around them and especially about people. Yes. So religious trauma doesn't just manifest through sexual abuse. Religious trauma occurs when a person's religious experience is stressful, degrading, dangerous, abusive, or damaging. Traumatic religious experiences may harm or threaten someone's physical, emotional, mental, sexual, or spiritual health and safety. Religion robustly shapes how we see the world and denying the existence of problems in the face of continual optimism and faith can be easy for some. But if this takes the form of this newly minted term, which I really am glad we're talking about, entitled toxic positivity, 
This can lead to further emotional and cognitive harm down the line. Therefore, when religious trauma occurs, it can leave many believing that they are inherently sinful or condemned. This can continue to exist even after they leave the religion and the previously held beliefs that they adhered to for so long. And we especially see this after someone experienced what we call any version of purity culture. The one in particular that we talk about is a subculture of evangelical Christian culture that emphasizes very very strict gender roles and norms abstinence and modesty but of course it doesn't it's not just there it's through many yeah. denominations and faiths that teach you that you are inherently sinful inherently bad as a clinician i could actually have an entire year long podcast just talking about the impact of toxic shame and mm -hmm. how that how that absolutely ruins lives. But we're going to stay on focus here. <laughs> yes. So to break this down even more, I want to talk about a few direct results that we see come out of research studies when they're looking at religious trauma. So in order to examine the traumatic scars that religious trauma leaves behind, we have referenced a study from Poland that was published in the Archive for the Psychology of Religion, which is an academic journal. And the study, it actually does look at sexual abuse trauma specifically, but I think the findings are an interesting discussion point for really any type of religious trauma. So in this case, the authors conducted a qualitative study in the form of semi-structured interviews with women who had experienced sexual abuse at the hands of religious leaders when they were in their adolescence and young adulthood. So the results show that a significant number of the respondents experienced or had experienced religious multifaceted struggles in three areas, interpersonal, intrapsychic, and relationships with God. So when we look at the research in this area, there is kind of five, even though these researchers coined it in, in terms of three things, there's really five main themes that we find with survivors of religious trauma. So the first one is their change in attitudes towards priests or religious leaders. An attitude change toward the clergy is just kind of overall and in general, as you can imagine, many survivors experience strong internal confusion because on the one hand, there's an internalized sense of respect for priests, right? If they have been taught this their entire life, that's been the narrative. Well, on the other hand, there are the abuse-related emotions. The priest's use of the holy orders and the privileges of God's representatives gives the victim a feeling as though it has been sometimes God himself who has committed the abuse, whatever that may be. The deep-rooted belief that the church leads to God and that the personification of God in the person of the priest result in a sense of being rejected by God himself and or a sense of guilt, a lot of guilt due to the inability to participate in the life of the church. So, I mean, this is already so messed up is the only way that I can and say complex. that. I mean, yeah. it's very complex. Yeah. And, you know, we think about just how complex surviving sexual abuse is on its own when it doesn't have this religious aspect to it. This is just so, so much worse in a lot of ways. I mean, I guess, you know, you have the religious piece and the belief aspect behind it, but it also is not unlike being abused by a family member with whom you also have this cognitive dissonance going on of them being the protector and the person unconditionally loves you, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that comes up for me when we share this particular perspective is that, and not saying that anything is easier versus something that's worse because it's all horrifically traumatic. But one of the aspects about perpetrators who are family members or, you know, interpersonal familiars is this, this mixed signal. You know, when someone is trauma bonded to the parent who is the abuser, there's mm-hmm. this mixed message that is that gets sent, which sent to the individual, which is a, a very is setting a, a foundation for a lot of toxic shame. But there's something different that happens in the role of the power differential between uh, a clergy member and their victim, in that there's this other layer of you are inherently sinful. But this process is going to remove that sin from you. So you have to stay involved in it. Mm. And so it's just like this, almost like this horrible feedback loop. But I don't think there's quite a parallel for an intrafamiliar, not saying that either one is less toxic, less harmful. It's just different. So, you know, when a clinician has to formulate a treatment plan for someone in recovery from this type of abuse, all of those factors have to be taken into place. Yeah, for sure. So another thing that we see as a result of religious trauma is changes about the attitudes just about the church in general. And as mentioned above, the victims often place the blame exclusively on the abuser, whereas secondary victimization caused by the non-empathetic response from the members of the Catholic Church and the hierarchy results in victims leaving the whole community of the church. Another prominent researcher in this area, Mr. Doyle, writes that Quote, the official church's response to the reports of clergy abuse and to the victims is pivotal to their spiritual balance. The abuser is in a far more powerful and essential position in the church than the abused victim, end quote. So just again, like hearkening back to those power bases and why they're so important in victim recovery. But what can also have a secondarily traumatizing effect is the participation in the life of the church and the physical presence just of going into churches after the the abuse is and the trauma has been experienced. Places and situations associated with the person of the priest may turn out to trigger stimuli, which activates abuse-related feelings and emotions, just like any traumatic experience would. Some victims, however, do seek support and help in church communities. And it sometimes happens that a victim meets with ostracism and rejection in such settings, which again, marks another step in their withdrawal from the church. It just ends up not being the safe place that they thought it would be again. Absolutely. You think about that being part of their coping skill, you know, their faith, their church as part of their internal toolbox for navigating through life. And suddenly you're ostracized from it. And that leads into an additional factor of despair despair from the loss of God, because the victim, usually a strong believer before the incident now falls into a deep despair with a sense of betrayal from the church and a sense of rejection by their community. They experience a sense in their relationship with divinity being broken. And of course, it's no surprise that this leads to anxiety, sadness, hopelessness, all of these things that are just red flags and bells warning against the potential for self-harm. Very, very concerning. Then there's toxic guilt and what I would term or what is known as immobilizing fear because survivors often blame themselves for the abuser's actions and then seek motives provoking the abuser in themselves. 
So what did I do to make this happen? And Doyle writes in 2009 that the most destructive dimension of this sense of guilt is the victim's belief that they were abused by God because they had done something wrong. Therefore, they deserved this type of punishment. That is so messed up. And also finds a parallel in intrafamilial abuse at the same time. Well, you yep. did this. You absolutely set this up. I'm only doing this because you were bad. And then, of course, there is the overarching loss of spiritual security, the sense of having severed the relationship with the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church or severing the relationship with God, which is used to be the victim's spiritual identity. So that loss may lead to considerable difficulty in finding spiritual security anywhere else, even if it's in a different community of believers. The world of faith in God and relationship with God that used to provide support in those difficult moments of life before the series of events has also been destroyed and dismantled, which means that the person is left without this support. Completely devastating. Yeah, I, I mean, you and I both know when you're working with folks that have been through a traumatic experience, one of those elements that you sort of assess for is how does spirituality sort of help in your support? You know, for some people, it's not present at all. <laughs> and then we, we move on and we talk about social support and all those other things. And for some folks, it's obviously really, really present. And if that was the source of the trauma, you know, what then? So other literature sources have agreed that these struggles are incredibly complex and intense enough to be correctly referred to as, like we've been using the language, religious trauma, spiritual trauma, or even spiritual violence. So you will see that listed in the literature. And just to tie into this concept, there is a term called religious trauma syndrome, RTS, that occurs when an individual struggles with leaving a religion or a set of beliefs contributing to their indoctrination. So religious trauma often involves having to break away from a very controlling environment, perhaps even, you know, their entire lifestyle or a particular spiritual figure. And I kind of think of this more when we talk kind of bleed over into the cult type issues. Yeah. So in some settings with some individuals, the symptoms of religious trauma and this breaking away can be very similar to those who experience complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Not in the DSM, I, it, you know, it's, it's nothing like that. I just wanted to acknowledge that this is notable enough that clinical therapists have been starting to coin this term of a religious trauma syndrome. So where do we go from here? I mean, this is a lot of problems. We've, we've noted the complexity. What is an organization expected to do because there is a lot of action in the Catholic church, but as Dr. Shiloh was offering earlier in the episode, there are still cases that continue to emerge and they're not all cases occurring 10, 15, 20 years ago. There is still perpetration of these acts. So I would like to suggest that, that the large organizations need to be more critical in their thinking as much as we're mm -hmm. asking children to be more adept in critical thinking. I think that large organizations, which actually is the whole reason we have industrial and organizational psychology to help institutions move away from old ways of thinking. And we generally frame this in terms of 
what you can do in the moment versus long-term planning. Short-term prevention efforts could identify potential victims, of course, and then that would be instituted into first-order change. And it sounds kind of harsh, but developing a profile on who is more likely to be victimized. And it might be someone from a lower income. It might be from someone who has family or interpersonal issues at home that make them more vulnerable to an authority figure within the church. But let me define a little bit before I go forward with that first and second order change. When we talk about change, it can be categorized into those two distinct types, first order change and second order change. First order change involves doing more or less of what we're already accustomed to. It's like making adjustments within the existing structure where we tinker and play around with the elements of which we're familiar. The critical aspect of first order change is that it remains reversible, right? If we find that it doesn't suit our needs or goals, we can easily revert back to the previous ways. We can tinker with it. We can slightly change. I, I kind of think of it sometimes as like, let's see if this Band-Aid works yeah. on this gaping head wound. <laughs> maybe maybe the wound is a scratch and some Bactine and a Band-Aid are okay, but generally it's not. Because first order change is like an immediate reactionary effort at restoring balance or achieving homeostasis. And it tries to ensure that the structure is going to stay within the boundaries of the known and the familiar. First order change is generally non-transformational, meaning it doesn't require institutions to acquire or learn entirely new skills or knowledge. And then the institutions can continue telling the same old story with these minor adjustments. Look at what we're doing. Look at the yeah. actions that we're taking. So the actions that the churches have taken in this vein include moving clergy around or hiding them. Look, they're not here anymore. We've shipped them off to another parish. How is that making it any better, right? And sometimes that's also with or without any kind of disciplinary actions being taken. Well, there's a lot fewer kids over in that parish in the middle of nowhere, so they're less likely to be able to find a victim. These are the thought processes that have historically happened and continue to happen today. And look, while making payments for financial restitution to victims is absolutely necessary, it cannot be left within the category of first order change because it does not address the situation that allowed all of these horrors to emerge. Indeed. So second order change, on the other hand, takes a completely different approach. It involves making a conscious decision or being compelled sometimes to do right. something significantly or fundamentally different from what has been done before. And once an institution embarks on this journey, there really isn't any turning back. There's no defaulting on like, well, we have a million band-aids, so we'll just keep using this. It is an irreversible process. Second order change often begins informally outside of the confines of established structures. And it's a shift in perspective, a new way of seeing things that can lead to the transformation of the entire system into something quite different. Unlike first order change, second order change demands new learning, requiring us to acquire fresh knowledge, fresh skills, and hopefully as a result, an entire new story emerges, one that departs from that familiar narrative and reflects the profound shifts that have taken place and hopefully really acknowledges those outside entities that are asking for the change. So yeah. again, this is coming from the outside in because coming from the inside is first order and doesn't actually do much. Absolutely. I mean, and, and 
to use a metaphor, it is taking a jackhammer to the old foundation. And that can be really difficult. You know, sometimes is it even possible to do that? How are you going to dismantle these structures? But just again, so first order change in the most postmodern narrative, it tends to please the masses because it's very reactionary. It's like, look what we're doing. We're changing this and we're doing it really fast, right? So people think of it as like, this is going to be done quickly. It's going to be done efficiently. And then it's going to provide relief to the public's overwhelming emotions to unpleasant situations. This is really gross. I don't want to think about it. I want it fixed. I want it done with. And unfortunately, the Band-Aid sometimes can placate the community at large when it needs to not be placated because more change has to happen. Because second order change is what is necessary for permanent shifts in the structures. And it requires acknowledgement of the mistakes of the previous structure long-term. So second order change should delve deeply into these systemic factors that enabled clergy sexual abuse and then generated the unique traumatic effects of the abuse on the believers. And unfortunately, since 2002, institutional church agencies like dioceses and religious communities have primarily focused on short-term prevention measures. Even with all the payouts, even with television and media blitzes for were you, are you a survivor of sexual abuse? Cases still keep emerging because they're not really doing second order change. Yeah. And and I like that you added in there that second order change really has to have that element of acknowledgement of the wrongdoings. But I feel like at this point, like even that really isn't good enough. Like, okay, we see that you've acknowledged. We see that the highest ranking, you know, the Pope has acknowledged this. Do something about it. Right. So those who have suffered sexual abuse by Catholic clergy or religious figures have as we've established, endured spiritual trauma in addition to emotional and psychological trauma. The impact on the soul can be subtle, worsening and becoming more debilitating over time. And many survivors have expressed that the spiritual pain surpasses even the emotional anguish that we see with sexual abuse. Notably, spiritual harm extends beyond the direct victims to encompass individuals like parents and spouses, siblings, as well as others who know, love, or care for those victims. I would also say as well as community. The spiritual damage has also affected attorneys, counselors, media personnel, and law enforcement professionals who engage with clergy abuse victims. Their exposure to the experiences of victims has profoundly shaken their spiritual religious belief systems. And we have talked, you know, we've talked about, you can have one crime of sexual abuse and have so many people within the criminal justice system impacted by it, right? Like the idea of why we have to involve ourselves in a lot of self-care because of what we expose ourselves to. But then there's this other piece sometimes that just really hits home for people. And that can certainly be what they struggle with spiritually as a result of even just their work. Yeah. So our first case today is uh, that of Mark Valencia, a native of Shelby, Mississippi. And in several articles that we list in our show notes, he vividly recalls the moment he first encountered the priest who would change his life forever and not for the better. It was 1968. And at the age of 12, he was what we'd call an innocent child playing third base on the local little league baseball field. 
And this was the year that Reverend Bernard Haddocken had arrived in town. And he was a very charismatic priest. And he stood out with his super friendly presentation and casual and non-threatening attire. And unlike priests of the past, Father Hadigan mingled freely with the community. He was breaking down barriers and earning trust. And Valencia did not know that this encounter would mark the beginning of a nightmare that haunted him for years and had long lasting impact on his mental health. Over time, Reverend Hadigan's seemingly harmless gestures of friendship evolved into something that was a lot more significant and sinister. He introduced not only Valencia, but other young boys to alcohol, nicotine, while taking them to public events, including sporting and movies and such. So as we spoke about earlier, this is the process of grooming, which is constantly redirecting the potential victim's experience into that of trust. And I have a special relationship with you. I'm going to open the door to this thing that's bad, but it's not really bad. So this is where the grooming process begins. Hadigan gradually broke down boundaries and luring the boys into really to use a big metaphor, it was a web. The abuse began gradually with Hadigan making advances on Valencia, who was initially too naive to understand what was happening to him. As the abuse escalated, Valencia's life descended into a nightmare cycle of trauma, manipulation, and above all, direction by Hadigan to keep secrets. Hadigan was very good at coercing all the boys into silence, making them confess their sins to him after each abuse episode. Again, very manipulative, such a common grooming technique in spiritual abuse where there is connection of the abuse itself to their own innate sinfulness. And then the only way to relieve themselves of that was to confess to the priest. Very, very toxic cycle there. Yeah. Valencia estimates that he endured Hadigan's abuse between 75 to 100 times over a span of approximately three years, a relentless ordeal that left deep emotional and psychological scars. Eventually, in an act of immense courage, he disclosed the abuse to his mother and an uncle who were completely shocked and really couldn't even comprehend what was going on with their son and this trusted religious leader. So as Valencia grew into adulthood, he grappled with low self-esteem, depression, and overwhelming crippling fear. His life was marked by a constant struggle to cope with the trauma inflicted on him. And despite marrying, having children, and even establishing a career, the specter of Hadigan continued to haunt him. The priest officiated at family events, further tormenting Valencia and his loved ones. It was only in 1985, during a period of marital difficulties, that Valencia finally sought help from another priest and disclosed his childhood abuse. The disclosure led to therapy, but also exposed him to the unsettling response of the church, which seemed more concerned with protecting its image than providing genuine support. The therapist, a Catholic nun, discouraged him from pursuing actions that might harm the church. Again, a perfect example, a perfectly horrifying example of an institution that's being quite insular and trying to keep everything under their control. And the idea that's so abhorrent to me is that this was a clinician, likely a licensed clinician, who's also 
supposed to be a person of faith and is advising mm-hmm. this individual against taking care of themselves in favor of protecting the church. But the turning point came for Valencia when his mother revealed on her deathbed that she had met with a high-ranking church official, Bernard Law, in Jackson, and she had reported her son's abuse. And But despite these efforts, no concrete action was taken by the church. Ongoing encounters with therapists and mental health struggles led him to a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD eventually. The mental health issues became so severe that he lost his job and was forced into medical retirement at the age of 48. Valencia, though, remained determined to seek justice and support for himself and other survivors. Despite multiple meetings with church officials, he felt that his efforts were met with indifference and minimal financial settlements. The church's priority was very clear. It was silencing victims rather than addressing their trauma, even as he co-founded the Mississippi chapter of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, also known as SNAP, and connected with fellow survivors, Valencia remained haunted by his past. Today, he identifies as agnostic. He's drifted away from his Catholic faith, and he reflects on the trials and tribulations he's faced, hoping that if there is a higher power, it will show compassion and understanding for the suffering that he and others like him have endured. I would like to also share that this case is quite old. I wanted to go back far enough with cases that represented those that really came up against the wall of the church, as opposed to some of the more recent ones. Horrible though. I mean, just that example of being brave enough to go in front of a person that you're allegedly supposed to be able to trust as a mental health clinician and having them dismiss and diminish your experience in favor of protecting the institution. Again, that's just another layer of trauma for an individual. Right. And as an adult, you know, an, an adult who had yes. made a life for himself and and gotten, you know, it sounds like he had a lot of post-traumatic growth just to be destroyed again, you right. know, in a lot of ways. So let's move on to the story of Pierre. So Pierre Chambers was a prominent figure within his church. He was an accomplished musician, a devoted father, and a survivor of child sexual abuse. And he courageously shares his story to raise awareness about the prevalence of such incidents in faith communities beyond the Catholic Church. So Pierre's traumatic experience unfolded between the age of 12 and 15 when he became a victim of child sexual abuse. The perpetrator was a close family friend and the youth pastor at his church. And he was also the charismatic choir director, really held a significant role in the church community. Pierre's upbringing was deeply rooted in the Black Pentecostal church with his father serving as a deacon and his mother leading Sunday school. As a result, Pierre spent a considerable amount of time at the church, immersing himself in its activities. And the youth pastor who had gained Pierre's trust started offering him gifts, special attention, exclusive privileges, effectively isolating him for one-on-one interactions. So during these interviews from several years ago, Pierre recollects he was like a big brother to me. He would pick me up from school and church. His wife would cook me dinner. My parents trusted him completely. I think it's very interesting that and, and significant that he uses the word trust because mm-hmm. that is a significant power play by groomers is establishing that trust that goes beyond just their victim, but the circle around the family members, everyone, he, this is a person who has gained everyone's trust and thereby is able 
to perpetrate more and more acts. Pierre's parents sort of sensed that something was a little off just due to the excessive amount of time that he spent with an adult. But explanations seemed plausible at the time. So the youth pastor gave Pierre gifts, special attention, and privileges for spending time with him one-on-one. And from a young age, Pierre was dedicated to the church and knew that he wanted to learn more and get more involved. So he thought that these were special privileges that were just part of learning about the church and shadowing his mentor. So the situation continued to escalate, and the youth pastor's grooming tactics clouded Pierre's judgment. He remained silent, fearing repercussions for his family and the church community at large. However, the turning point came when Pierre was about to attend a weekend retreat with the youth pastor and his father noticed something was amiss. Pierre's father confronted him and he finally confided in his parents about the abusive relationship. Pierre recalls, that's when I told my parents that I was in a relationship with the youth pastor and they said, no, that's not a relationship, that is child abuse. His parents immediately took him to the hospital for a sexual assault forensic exam, but the trauma was so severe that Pierre has no recollection of the exam. I can't, so courageous for him to come forward, but, and and they sound like they're doing everything right, but I can't imagine how traumatizing that was. And also, I think this is a great time to reflect that although not every parent or set of parents is going to be able to do this, Pierre's parents immediately responded in the most appropriate way. They drew boundaries there. This is not right. This is not a relationship. This is abuse. And they took all the steps that were correct, which is something that is very important in contrast to our example from the Catholic church, because Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church also spent years indoctrinating the victim's parents, right? The church represents a monolith of power for those in that particular faith. And in Protestant churches, I think it's a little bit more emphasis on maybe criticizing that monolith won't Mm. hold the same amount of power. So Pierre's parents reported the abuse, initiating a long and lengthy legal process. The perpetrator eventually pleaded guilty to seven of an overall 50 counts of felony childhood sexual abuse and was sentenced to, unfortunately, just six years in state prison. But in sharing this story, Pierre emphasizes the importance of trust, as we were talking about before, especially within faith communities. And he's quoted as saying, I had profound trust in the church. It was the closest I could ever be to God. But that absolute trust can be broken and manipulated by bad individuals. Truer words never spoken. So to the point, due to his own painful experience, Pierre is now dedicated to ensuring that parents, educators, anyone interacting with children and teenagers are well-informed about the warning signs of sexual abuse. And he really emphasizes the significance of maintaining open lines of communication with children and urges individuals to trust their instincts when something seems amiss. This is a huge, huge issue. Regardless of your politics, regardless of where you are on the spectrum about many subjects, I can't emphasize to you enough that you have to talk to your children about what is appropriate physical connection when it's age appropriate, when it's not. You cannot push this away and think that it's going to be, well, we'll talk about that when she's 15. It does not work that way. Absolutely does not. 
As part of his healing journey, Pierre turned to writing, community involvement, and other faith mentors that he was able to establish trust and mentorship with. He himself has even authored a memoir called I Trusted You that chronicles his entire ordeal. Additionally, he is collaborating with writer-director Lee Davis to bring his story to screen through an upcoming film project. So having started with two examples of male victims, we wanted to also highlight the very complex issue of female victims of clergy abuse, which creates a very challenging counterpoint. While our culture has no problem identifying and calling out the abuse of males by males, there's an enormous double standard when it comes to female victims. And for years, they've been framed as Lolita's, pulling male clergy into sin and women are still very much the forgotten victims of clergy sexual abuse, historically neglected by the media and seemingly invisible to activists. I, I challenge anyone listening to this, that when we talk about clergy sexual abuse, what type of victim pops into your head? Exactly. Exactly. It's only after years of revelations of the abuse of male victims that attention was finally paid to female victims, revealing that females comprise a sizable number, likely half of all victims of sexual abuse by clergy. In the last few decades, as the focus of sexual abuse within the Roman Catholic Church has been on predatory sexual assault by priests on male minor victims, and the subsequent cover-up by some bishops, female victims have expressed frustration, isolation, and minimization of their trauma. Focus and funds have largely gone to male victims, and they say that they're frustrated and isolated as they attempt to deal with the emotional aftermath of sex abuse. Gary Schoner, a psychologist in Minneapolis, addressed several hundred cases of clergy abuse through the early 2000s, and he's stating, quote, the double standard is terrible because it is presumed that the abuse of young boys is more deviant and therefore more harmful. He goes on to further illustrate the double standard by showing that the financial compensation amounts awarded to female victims are likely to be much less than the settlement amounts for males. His research also shows that female victims are more likely to feel victimized again after they report the assaults which leads to, unfortunately, the all too familiar tendency of cases involving sexual abuse of females being less likely to be reported. And Dr. Schoner is quoted in several articles as saying, girls and women are the only group that, if you're in a deposition, they're asked if they liked it. I've probably only had that asked of one adult male ever. The girls are asked what they were wearing and they are accused of being seductive. It is virtually routine. The way in which it's dealt is totally different. If you're a girl, the likelihood that revealing the abuse may impact your current relationships, like your marriage, your family relationships, it's very significant. We have women and girls who lose their marriages or have their marriages badly mucked up because they came forward. I feel for the boys. It's not that I don't think it's harmful. It's that it's no more harmful than what happens to the girls or women. Very powerful statement. Absolutely. Very, very powerful. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad he is speaking and writing about this and, and doing research on this because I think it's it's fascinating. I mean, it it's like I said at the top, it's that one area where yes, the numbers support that more boys are abused and that 
even though with underreporting, it's tricky, right? We start to go, well, like, do we even really know what's happening here? Maybe it is way more girls and it is way more girls than we ever thought. But because of, again, like accessibility, which we know is a huge risk factor in child sexual abuse, that it looks like that accessibility does make it that boys are abused at higher rates, especially just looking at the Catholic church, but certainly that, and we'll see this again in our media depiction that the just the, the same threads that we see with girls reporting and being dismissed and then how they're treated afterwards. Yeah. In reading some of these cases, I mean, there were so many cases that are out there, especially on the SNAP website that are just fascinating and horrifying. I remember being moved by one and I won't mention her name, but I wanted to point out something that I noticed in her talking about how frustrated she was that she was not receiving the same amount of attention for her case that boys were. And she was frustrated with it. And then she won downed herself by saying, I mean, I wasn't sodomized and I know that's mm -hmm. really horrible and it's worse than what I had and blah, blah, blah. And it's not worse. It's Dang. different, yeah. but it's not worse. But here, that's an example of your greater culture and the socialization that we impress upon women to make their needs less important yeah. than men's. I mean, there, we're all victims here. All of them are victims. And you don't need to place yourself as less victimized just because of the prevailing narrative. Kansas City attorney Corinne Corley shared her experience of being abused as a teenager by a priest in St. Louis when she was 17 years old. She says they were totally unwilling to really acknowledge what happened to me was really terrible because of the heterosexual factor. They're going to assume that you are a Lolita, a temptress. Additionally, former SNAP president and founder Barbara Blaine who was abused as a teenager by a priest in Ohio, stated in an interview, quote, we were treated like we were the evil sinner, like we caused the good holy priest to sin. And in 1994, Blaine received a financial settlement from the Diocese of Toledo. Marita Gale reported in 1993 to the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, that she had been abused by a priest in Kansas City in the mid-1960s. Initially, the diocese agreed to cover her counseling expenses. Still, when Gale started naming the two priests she accused in her therapy sessions, the situation took a turn. In a letter dated June 29, 1994, the Reverend Norman Rotert, who was the vicar general of the diocese at the time, stated that there was no supporting evidence for Gale's claims. He mentioned that both priests strongly denied any wrongdoing. Rodert proposed a deal to Gail. If she could admit that neither of the two priests had abused her, the diocese would commit to an additional six months of weekly therapy. What, what a deal. What a deal. Fuck? I know. <laughs> to talk about what? Like, exactly. At that point? Oh, my God. Gail sought legal assistance from Kansas City attorney Rebecca Randalls, who criticized Rodert's offers as resembling extortion and portraying the church as unsupportive and uncaring. Gail declined Rodert's proposal and continued therapy at her own expense. Rodert maintained that he considered her case invalid and declined further commentary. Well, we don't care what you think, Rodert. The then Reverend Patrick Rush stated he believed the diocese handled cases of female victims effectively pointing out that women participate in both the response team dealing with the victims and the review board investigating allegations. 
He went on to incorrectly assert that cases involving male victims far outnumber those involving females and dismiss the idea that the number of female victims reaches 50%. Another person we don't need to hear from. No, I'm just, uh, speechless. <laughs> I mean, I'm speechless. just like, on September 23rd, 2020, Joelle Castix, an advocate for child safety and a prominent voice in the clergy abuse crisis, challenged conventional wisdom with a thought-provoking question. What if women comprise 50% of sexual abuse victims in the Catholic Church? Her work, including Assembly Bill 218 and her involvement in addressing the child safety issue, has made her a respective figure in this domain. Castix questioned the prevailing narrative surrounding the victims of the Catholic Church's clergy sex abuse crisis. She introduced the idea of a statistically significant sample of abuse survivors within the Catholic Church, where 50% of respondents were female. This notion challenged the commonly accepted belief that boys outnumber girls by a ratio of four to one among abuse victims. This intriguing proposition led Castics to conduct the Survivors Insight Survey the results of which she openly shared. And according to the survey, a surprising 51% of the respondents were female, highlighting a significant shift from the expected statistics. Additionally, the survey revealed that 40% of clergy predators were not listed by any diocese. Most notably, 90% of survivors had experienced abuse at the hands of priests, brothers, and nuns, while the remaining 10% had suffered abuse from lay employees and workers in and around the religious institutions. So Castix's relatively recent work in this area highlights an ongoing issue in victim gender and challenges preconceived notions, emphasizing the need for a more comprehensive and inclusive understanding of the issue. While she is not a formal researcher herself attached to an academic institution, and she did send out this as a self-report, it is a significant amount of information that absolutely requires further investigation. Now, regarding the issue of sexual orientation, David Clohesse, the national director of the network, emphasized that attributing the problem primarily to homosexuality completely oversimplifies a very complex issue. He compared this perspective to those who blame it on a being a litigious society or that they're the victim of salacious media. Many individuals, including high-ranking church officials, have advocated for this viewpoint. So again, just to simplify what he's saying is that the church and community at large has said that, well, all of these actions, even if it's our priests or even if it's clergy, it's because of the world we live in. And right. they're just exposed to all these terrible things, which makes them more likely to commit these crimes. I have to digest that. <laughs> I got to digest that, as I'm sure some of our readers do. And in March 2002, Vatican spokesman Joaquin Navarro Valls stirred up a lot of controversy when he stated that gay men should not be ordained as priests. While he clarified that his statement did not imply a final judgment on people with homosexuality, using that term with homosexuality, oh, I'm with the homosexuality. Right, right. He argued that they should not pursue this career. I mean, it's just such a mind screw to say something like that. Again, as we started off in this episode talking yeah. about first order change, rather than long-term permanent reorganization of the foundational problems. It's not right. about the sexual orientation. It's about your screening process for keeping out abusers. That's not solid. Right. And I, I can even understand someone listening to this episode and go, well, why the fuck should I teach my kid to be so analytical about a 
potential perpetrator, they should not be perpetrating. And you're absolutely right. Yep. But Absolutely. that second order change is not happening. So, I mean, obviously we have to empower ourselves in, in certain ways. I mean, this guy, like he clarified that the statement did not imply a final judgment. Oh, thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Oh, I feel word. so much better now. <laughs> I mean, I will not. say that is we have a Pope now that will say something that like gives me hope. Yeah. And then the next day he'll say something so I know. screwily fucked up. I'll go, okay, great. One step forward, five steps back. Yeah. Absolutely what it feels like. Similar concerns have been raised by U.S. church leaders, such as Cardinal Adam Maida of Detroit, who suggested that the issue is more about homosexuality than pedophilia. He called for a closer examination of the presence of homosexuality within seminaries and the priesthood. This perspective has also found its way into the conservative Catholic circles. An article in the Weekly Standard entitled The Elephant in the Sacristy asserted that the crisis primarily involves relationships between men and boys with little evidence of heterosexual child molestation in the American church. If you want to experience true mental gymnastics framed in a homophobic, misogynistic framework, feel free to Google this article and you will get plenty of that. I And I specifically wanted to frame it that way in our narrative because I'm not even going to put a link to that article in the show notes. Yeah, it's the yeah, elephant like in the sacristy. And it is infuriating to read because it just links you to all of these ultra conservative Catholic websites that they just justify so much and try and blame it all on sexuality rather yeah. than abuse. And we touched on some of the theories as to why this happens in part one. You guys also know from listening us to us talk about different pathways to sexual abuse and motivations and risk factors that the numbers of victims and perpetrators in the Catholic sexual abuse scandals cannot be supported by sexual orientation or even just pedophilia. It just cannot. It's about other things. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, it, they're easy well, things to fall back on, but right. we, we haven't really touched on this in a while, maybe in one of our earlier shows on rape, but it comes back to the idea of when you talk about the concept of rape, rape mm -hmm. is not a sexual act. Rape right. is an act of power control and violence. Now I'm not saying that there aren't clergy out there that are sexually attracted to minors, that absolutely could be a thing, but we can't completely separate it from an organization that takes young men and women, trains them to be leaders and mentors in this institution, in this religious institution, giving them an oversized sense of power that's going to attract people. Like we said, there are people who go into these fields strictly because of that power that they know is going right. to land in their laps. Yes. So let's get on to our, our last third here with media depictions. We can't not talk about the keepers and we're, aren't, we're not going to give away details of the yeah, keepers. If you haven't it's, seen it, we're not going to blow it for yeah, you. It's an amazing documentary please go experience it for yourself. If you have not probably in our top three true crime documentaries, and this is not a, a documentary review episode, but the keepers is a comprehensive true crime documentary series that delves into the 1969 murder of a nun. And it goes well beyond the surface level of just who killed sister Kathy. The keepers narrates the tale of victims striving for justice, 
many decades later and really offers them a platform to be heard amid the resounding denials of the official entities. The series is visually stunning. It's accompanied by a hauntingly great score. And this Netflix doc came out in 2017, but director Ryan White embarked on this project way before making a murderer kind of highlighted this type of storytelling, really dedicating himself to telling multiple survivors and victims stories, which you and I always know is important in these. So in brief, Sister Kathy Chesnick, a young nun, disappeared in November 1969 from her Baltimore apartment. A year later, she was found on a frozen hillside, her skull shattered, and the mystery surrounding her death remained and remains unsolved. And White, in this unbelievably well-edited series, interviews witness after witness, police, former schools, former students of Chesnick, local journalists, and notably a few church members. And wasn't there a interview of a woman that really boiled your blood that you always rant about? Was it the yeah, DA? It's, no, it's not the DA. It's the mayor. Oh, there, it's the mayor. Right. And she, I mean, I, I don't even want to spoil it for you, but if you want to see a creepily crooked city official, this mm -hmm. mayor, wow. I mean, I'm not going to ruin it for people who haven't right. seen it, but it's, it's amazing. It's genius the way that this documentary just meticulously and painstakingly uncovers such a complex narrative in every episode. I mean, you are just, it is really good storytelling. Yeah. And after you finally get past Sister Kathy's murder, the documentary takes an entirely different shift that informs most likely why this individual, this wonderful, beloved sister and teacher was murdered. And the focal point comes from a duo of wonderful, wonderful middle-aged women, dedicated formal pupils that kind of met up again in their 60s and like, hey, do you remember when we were in school and yeah. Sister Kathy disappeared? And they just become inspired to unravel this mystery despite all the passing of years and, you know, clearly what is a denial of justice in this case. Yeah, so what starts as a cold case evolves in the, to this really chilling story of, systematic abuse, repressed memory comes up in this, and then an entire institutional cover-up by the church, police, and the state prosecution department. You also have, you know, the mayor, which is a peach. And in White's portrayal, no one bears direct responsibility except for really this apparent villain, Father Maskell, a student counselor accused of inflicting years of abuse. All of the attempts to indict him are thwarted with some victims alleging that were many other people in positions of power were involved from the police to even a local doctor. The details of the abuse at the school against these girls is just absolutely appalling so infuriating and it's, again it, it's very clear that something was going on i mean there's a lot that's lost to time yeah. but there was something going on and it really you come away from it with a very strong implication that maskell was running basically he was sex trafficking several yeah. female students on right. a regular basis and they're so traumatized to this day the survivors that you know, they've blanked out on huge uh, portions of what happened. Yes. So again, coming back to this idea of boys being perpetrated at such large rates above and beyond 
girls when it comes to religious leaders perpetrating this type of abuse. Again, tons of research being done in this area, which is fantastic. I just want to give you one more breakdown from some studies as an example. So in contrast to the low estimate of victimized females in some of the church's reports, because don't forget, they've done their own reports. There's another huge random survey of over 7,000 active Catholics in the United States and Canada, and they found a much closer ratio as well, that 1.7% of the females and 3.3% of the males had been sexually abused in childhood by a priest. So yeah, again, I, I think we still need to keep looking at the numbers there. The one survey that you referenced by the non- academic researcher. I think people need to keep in mind that that was the number of respondents. 51% were women, not that she is saying 50% of victims are women. She is positing that up to 50%. Totally. And that it's closer to 50%. So again, there's th all this does for me is to say that we need more numbers you know, we need more uh, survivors to come forward yes. and share their stories. Yeah. We talked in the past about another wonderful film adaptation, and I won't go too far into it in the interest of time, but Spotlight came out in 2015. It's an American fact-based dramatic film, got two Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And it's all about the Boston Globe journalists who uncover the sexual abuse of children by Roman Catholic priests in Boston. It, it is so good. It is such good actors. It's such good writings. Yeah. It It is, pay, I, I'm not going to say it's paced like a thriller. It's just that you go into this realizing what a big deal it is. The story itself is a really big deal. I I, I can't say enough good things about it. And I, ex, except that I won't, I'm just going to tell people, please go out and watch it. <laughs> we raved Be about it last time. Yeah, too. <laughs> it's, it's really great. But I did want to mention another one that I think is a really great film and it touches not on sexual abuse, but it, it, it opens the door to many, many points along a spectrum of abuse by the Catholic church historically. And if you haven't had a chance to see the movie Philomena, highly, highly recommend it. It as well is a, is a based on a book. It's a true story. There are some elements of the film that have been dramatized, but it is an absolute true story. And it's only one story in probably thousands of young women who were unwed mothers that were sent to convents to have their children. And just what it does, it's the story of a woman who had a one night stand when she was a teenager. And she, as an elderly woman, now an adult, has been searching for her child that was taken away from her. She's been searching for this child for 50 years. And the church lies to her at every turn. And I don't even want to give anything else away because it's such a great movie. It's Judy Dench who can do no wrong. Right. And Steve Coogan playing the journalist who takes her on this journey. And you guys, it's, it's simultaneously wonderful, horrifying, hilarious, and, and heartwarming. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it's all these things at the same time. Yes, it's charming, but it also is talking about just how fucked up these religious organizations can be and have been historically. And it's, 
I won't even give anything more about it because I haven't yeah. revealed to you, but it's really great. All of our show notes are up if you're interested in reading more about the information that we've used to construct today's episode. Uh, I know it's a long one. Thank you so much. And, <laughs> you know, it's a long episode, but it's only the tip of the iceberg of what religious institutions do to these poor yeah. children. Yeah, it's it's very serendipitous. I had I saw a new client this week that they referred themselves for a totally different reason, but it's the first person I've had that says has said I was a victim of religious trauma, done a ton of work on it, you know, is is in a really good spot, but I was like, "Huh, this is so weird. I don't think anyone's, you know, come to me and just put that out there as part of their intake." So, well, um, I would add to it also that today's episode focused on victim stories and the themes of sexual abuse, but that's not the only kind of abuse out there. I mean, this religious trauma and religious abuse is very wide reaching and yeah. without casting aspersions on the institutions of faith that have provided support and successful guidance to people who are living fulfilled lives. I mean, absolutely no dispersion on your experience. However, I would say that another fascinating journey is the series Mormon stories about people leaving the Church of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And it's about their journey and having to leave behind them this entire foundation and system that their entire lives and families' lives have been about and how their questioning of the church led to a lot of challenges interpersonally. And it's really well produced and it's really wonderfully done. It's not hard to listen to. It's not like, I, I have not found it to be particularly traumatizing. It could be for some people, but if you're out there and you're looking for something to listen to, they're usually short little snippets, but it's fascinating stuff. Is it a podcast? It's more of a vlog. And it's oh, very okay. big on Facebook Reels and TikTok and Instagram mm, right now. Okay. But it's called Mormon Stories. Got it. Got it. All right, everyone. Thank you for hanging in there with us. And we will have your documentary review episode next week. We're watching Hell Camp. So we will be talking about that. <laughs> and we will be traumatized by that. We uh, certainly will. And then in two weeks on the 27th, we have our Behind the Couch live stream on Saturday, the 27th at Mm -hmm. 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Please put that in your calendar. We'll put announcements on social media. We'd love to see you. All right, everyone. We'll catch you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, 
and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA not so confidential. Bye folks.